Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, as every episode, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have Peter Husey, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, and I dare say he is a Washington institution. He is one of the longest memories around in terms of where we've gone from the Reagan administration to the present on nuclear arms, nuclear strategy. Peter was there, and he's been writing about it the whole time. So if you're ever interested in reading what Peter has to say, you can go to The National Interest, and you've written at Warrior Maven here recently and other places. So Peter's written a ton. Go read him. Now, the reason we're here today, Peter, is to discuss the recent news that Vladimir Putin announced to the Duma that he will no longer participate in any of the New START Treaty compliance uh, efforts. He did not withdraw from the New START Treaty, but he will no longer be participating in any of the you know, stipulated requirements of, of New START. So you've been looking at this, been thinking about it a very long time. So could you start by giving the listeners sort of a brief description of what New START is? Well, thank you, Adam, for the honor of being able to participate with you and ANWAS NuclearCast. Uh, I'm, New START's interesting. It is a treaty that limits what are called strategic nuclear vehicle, uh, delivery vehicles, and those are missiles and bombers. And the missiles are on submarines or they're in silos or on rail, gar- rail cars. And that's limited to 700 on each side, but only Russia and China, not uh, Russia and the United States, not China or, or Pakistan or India, for example, or North Korea. And then the implication is for each of those 700, uh, you have so many warheads. So they came up with a somewhat of a fictional number of 1,550 warheads because bombers would only count as one warhead no matter if you had 8, 12, uh, 10, or 20 uh, cruise missiles or, or gravity bombs in the hold, it only counted as one. And that's how they came up with only, you're allowed 60 of those, 60 bombers. So actually the Russians have somewhere probably around 2,400 warheads that they can legally uh, have with New START. And the United States, we can have that close to that number, but we don't have enough cruise missiles on our bombers. So we're probably around 16, 1,700 according to people like Mark Schneider. So the idea of the treaty at, at last year, 2026, was in, was extended by five more years by the Clinton administration, by the uh, Biden administration. And so the inspections, you're allowed 10 or so a year. And the problem is the warheads are often under a shroud. So you kind of have to guess. The way we did it in the Reagan administration and under Bush was 
it doesn't matter how many warheads you actually have on the missile or the bomber. What was the number you tested it at? And that's the number we're going to claim. And that gives us kind of an overall. So that's kind of where we are. And the, the treaty doesn't include all the theater systems, which are called short-range regional, that Russia has anywhere between two and 4,000. You pick the number. We have 200 deployed in Europe, none in Asia. And there are gravity bombs on fighter planes in places like Italy and Turkey and England. So, and then the Russians have some strategic system, which are the fancy name for long-range weapons, like the backfire, backfire bomber and the underwater torpedo they're building. Those are not included under New START. So, <clears throat> to be honest with you, the number that Russia have is somewhere north of 7,000 that they can put in the field. And we have about half that number, about 3,600. And then we have some we're waiting for dismantlement that you're not going to put back in the force. And that's about where we are, and that's what New START does. Yeah, and just it's it's also, you know, you, you mentioned this. And for the U.S., and I hear as I – for those uh, advocates of disarmament, they will often say, well, the United States has an arsenal of four to 5,000 which is, it's really not an accurate number. So it, I would always stipulate that we have roughly 1,550 operationally deployed strategic nuclear weapons under New START. And like you said, the counting rules are a little hinky, so therefore it can be a little more, a little less. But then for our reserve warheads, those are not actually warheads that we can just grab out of storage and, you know, put on an ICBM or put yeah, you know, on it. Give you an example, Adam. As you know, to put go from one to three warheads on our Minuteman, which we can do, you can do three missiles per wing per month. And we have three wings of ICBMs in Maelstrom, Montana, where the Chinese balloon was over the other day, and then Minot, North Dakota, and Cheyenne, Wyoming, F.E. Warren. And it would take three years and nine months to add those. You could do it quicker with the subs. But basically, you could double the number of deployed weapons, and that's it for the U.S. Russia, on the other hand, can go up by another couple thousand, another thousand, just legally with the 700 SNDVs they have. They included everything else, at least another thousand. And then I'm not even counting the theater systems. So it, there is a little bit of magic in these numbers. You have to kind of forget stuff in order to claim that there's kind of even Stephen with respect to the New START Treaty. Uh, what Putin's done is said, I don't like the rules that you've written since World War II, uh, number one. Number two, we really don't like NATO being upset about our going across the border because we didn't really invade Ukraine. They were... We had to, you know, incorporate them, and you, you know his excuses. And then 30 says England and France have to be counted, but they're not counted now, which is kind of interesting. My view is, okay, we'll count China. And what about North Korea? Because I've heard a number the other day that North Korea was building to at least 100, maybe 200, and China's going to build to 1,500, add those in, and it doesn't even come close to what England and France have, which is about 100 deployed weapons for each of them. And then the other thing Putin said is, we don't like your inspections allowed by the treaty because you're being nosy. You're being intrusive. And finally, to make it interesting, he said, 
we're facing new challenges and new threats, and therefore New Start is irrelevant. So that kind of tells you that he's either trying to put pressure on the arms control community in America to put pressure on Biden to, I guess, back off on Ukraine in order to make everything go back to the status quo on New Start, or he's setting the stage for actually exiting and then announcing that he has considerably more weapons deployed than the 1550, which you mentioned, which is the quote-unquote official number allowed by New Start, which is not actually true, but uh, as others have said, he they think in the four years since COVID, you haven't had inspections that the Russians are adding slowly and surely to their systems, which they can do much faster than we can. Well, I guess I, I guess I would push back on you, Peter, because, you know, you're suggesting that the Russians could possibly be cheating. And in my history with the Russians, I have never heard of the Russians be dishonest or cheat. Biological convention, biological weapons convention, <laughs> chemical weapons convention. Those are just good, honest people. And Vladimir Putin, you know, being the most honest of them all. So I take offense at that. No, I, I hear you, Adam. I, I know you're I – know you're, the thing is, as Frank Miller has often told me, and then Frank was a former OSD official for many years and then the White House and probably one of the most knowledgeable people in this business, he said there's not a treaty the Russians have signed and then the Soviets have signed either that they haven't violated, which is very true. Uh, they very did the INF. So uh, that makes it difficult. You know, Reagan said trust but verify. Uh, at least start one was valid in the sense we assume the Russians have a certain number of warheads given what they deployed. And it didn't matter what that was actually on the missile. It te was tested at X and that's for, that's what we thought they had. And so you could do that. But you, you're guessing on some of this, given the Russians penchant for cheating to say it, put it mildly. And also the fact that, the Russians have never been keen on allowing very intrusive inspections. We, on the other hand, anybody can come out from Russia and visit a Minuteman silo or a submarine and, and take a look. And we publish the numbers and very extensively, as you know. Uh, we had one senator actually put into the congressional record our strategic integrated operational plan in case there was a nuclear war. If you remember, it was Senator Kerry of Nebraska. Yeah. So, so as we as we think about Vladimir Putin's recent, you know, move to suspend any participation at New Start, the question that sort of popped into my mind and and I haven't really heard anybody talk about this, do you think it was in response to President Biden's trip to Ukraine? Do you think they played cuz the timing is pretty interesting? I mean, they sort of coincide. Do you think that this was sort of as if if President Biden's trip in which the Russians were informed ahead of time that Biden would be there and they were warned not to attack, not to harm the president. Do you think that that would have could have potentially been, you know, the time needed to make this decision and then to announce this decision? Or maybe they are completely unrelated. I think uh, Mr. Putin said everybody will be in focusing on Mr. Biden, our president in Poland. So why don't we grab some of that attention while the news folks are looking? And this is an international foreign policy business. 
Uh, it'll make the news. It's not going to be ignored. And uh, Putin will be able to get on the table. And, and again, he is obsessed with being an actor on the world stage that is taken seriously as one of the major powers. Okay. And, and as someone said the other day, they have a GDP of Italy. So what makes them a world power is their nuclear weapons, which they're always reminding us of that they are going to use unless we back off uh, either sending weapons to Ukraine or doing something. And, and, and my worry is I'm never quite sure how reckless is Mr. Putin with respect to when would the threats to use nuclear weapons become real? Yeah, you, you make a good point in that. So like you said, the, the Russian economy is about one and a half trillion dollars. The U.S. economy is about 22 to 24 trillion dollars. So it's, it's a yes. much smaller economy and it's a declining population. Uh, there's, there's been some interesting discussions. I've listened to some other podcasts in which you know, there's this view that Russia's population is now getting to the point upon which it, it's collapsing, fundamentally collapsing, and, and it's at a point of no return. And if Vladimir Putin does not take Ukraine and take it now, that that will be a possibility out of reach in, say, 10 years or in the future. And so it's kind of a now or never thing. And given, you know, sort of Russia's deep, deep concerns that – and we did a podcast with Rebecca Koffler, the author of Putin's Playbook. And one of the things Rebecca pointed out was that Russia has this deep-seated fear of invasion from the West, much less so from the East, but from the West, you know, beginning with Charles of, of Sweden and and then, you know, of course, Napoleon and Hitler and and so that this is their time to have have to do this and then to have to, you know, sort of saber rattle in order to limit U.S. and, and NATO responses. Now, do you see this move as really having any sort of meaningful implications or is it, you know, largely meaningless? I mean, they haven't been doing what they were required to do under the treaty requirements for the last several years anyways. So does this have any true meaning or, or is it just sort of more of the same? It's if, if Mr. Putin wants to announce that they are no longer abiding by the limits of new start, he'd have to leave the treaty. There's no provision to say, Oh, I don't like what you're doing unless there's a major breach. Then you can say the treaty's null and void, but he hasn't said that. I think he's up to at some point announcing that, he is no longer limited to the 1550 notional level in the treaty and could now deploy and announce that, see, I've got a lot more. And now you really were going to listen to what I have to say because, uh, you know, I was very restrainful when I had 1550, but, you know, now I'm really serious and I have like 2,500 or 3,000. And my view, that's where he's going. The only question is where. You make a very interesting point. The Russian population a number of years ago was declining to the point where people said it would be not 150 million, but about 80 million in a generation. And then it was compared to others that uh, this implosion, because they have very, very serious problems with cancers and tuberculosis and AIDS and uh, 
murder and suicide and alcoholism. And they're trying to jack the birth rate up by paying people to have babies, but it's not, not working as far as I can understand. And, and they may join China as an alliance, which they do have one kind of now. And uh, my view is this announcement is setting the stage for when Putin wants to announce that he's got more warheads than he should have. Okay. And then the question will be, does he think having that superiority will enable him to course us and push us around in short, uh, act further in terms of taking over Ukraine than he has done already. Cause I think he's, he is planning a major air and, and missile assault. We'll have to see how it, how, what happens. Now we're about halfway through the show. So it's time to take a quick break. We're talking to Peter Husey about Russia's breach of new start and their Vladimir Putin's recent statements that he's no longer going to adhere to the requirements. They're suspending participation. That's the right word. So we're talking about that and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So we're back and we're talking with Peter Husey. We're talking about Russia's suspension of participation in New START. So clarifying that that is not withdrawal from the treaty, two separate things. Now, I want to pose a strategy for you. So I've been trying to think um, like a Russian, like, like Vladimir Putin. And the way I look at it is this is not a smart move for Russia. And the reason I say that. If I'm the Russians, I really don't need a large strategic arsenal because I really don't want to get into that kind of a shooting match with the United States. So I would actually, if I'm Vladimir Putin, I would be willing to continue to negotiate down the strategic nuclear arsenal with the United States. But what I do want is a tactical, a non-strategic nuclear arsenal because my two adversaries, NATO and of course China is, you know, they're kind of a frenemy. I can hold them both at bay with non-strategic nuclear weapons. Whereas the United States, which doesn't have non-strategics in, I mean, the the DCA mission in Europe, it's a political mission. It's not an actual operational warfighting mission. I think we, we all know that the RISNO and CISNO, the reconnaissance and support of nuclear operations, conventional support for nuclear operations, they don't have those requirements such that they could actually load those weapons and then fly and deliver those weapons effectively. That, you know, hopefully 
NATO gets there, but they're not there yet. And so my my question then is, or my proposition is, is that Russia is making a mistake by breaching New START in any way whatsoever, because what they need to be doing, what I would do is negotiate down strategics, maintain this large non-strategic capability, and then use those to, uh, you know, for a fiat accompli against NATO, you know, like ultra low yields, you know, pop one or two off, see, see how much NATO really cares, you know, do it, you know, over Ukrainian territory, uh, don't do it on NATO soil, you know, make really complicate the calculus for, for NATO because the Russians there, you know, there's some, if you go to, uh, I forget it's the, it's the telegram with the social media, the Russian social media site. And there are folks that have telegram channels that, that are in Russia and they're looking at, you know, the price of eggs, for example, and the price of eggs in Russia right now is, you know, one fifth, the price of eggs here in the United States. And, you know, it was, it was a guy who is a U.S. immigrant who's now back in Russia visiting family. And he's sort of going around looking at what's in the shops and, and, you know, posting this stuff. And he's in a, you know, he's a, he's an American and he's, and, and it's interesting to see how we perceive what's going on in Russia and the pain we're inflicting. And then to see somebody who's actually in the country and the Russians seem to be doing fairly okay. Uh, and so I, I just wonder, you know, is Russia making a mistake by doing this? You, you, very interesting. Let's go back to 1999 and Boris Yeltsin. He issues a decree in April saying, build me small precision battlefield nuclear weapons. And then uh, Mark Schneider got some quotes from me about senior Russian military officers saying, I can't use these one 10 megaton weapons on the battlefield for sure. I can blow away a city, but they're useless. And it's kind of interesting point that, and guess what? Mr. Putin took Yeltsin's decree seriously and implemented the very thing that he called for in 1999. Now, you don't need the number of weapons you're talking about are in the dozens, maybe 50, but you're talking about threatening to use Weapons that don't lead to Armageddon. They don't lead to a massive exchange between the U.S. and and the United and Russia, or between the United States and China. I think is adopting the same plan. So Putin thinks that I can threaten a more credible strike with limited number of weapons, half a dozen, quarter, you know, three or four dozen. Who knows? Um, And that threat may be credible enough to get the United States to stand down in a conventional conflict. In fact never even joined the fight. Now, as you know, we announced up front when we thought the Russians might invade Ukraine, we said, we're not going to send American forces and NATO's not going to send American forces. So Putin got half of what he wanted. What he wanted, the other half was no weapons. And that, of course, we decided to go ahead and, and do, but we did somewhat fitfully and a little bit slowly. And therefore, the, the, the surprise was how courageous the Ukraine people were and the military, and that they didn't take advantage of some of their systems. So your question, Adam, goes to why would Mr. Putin breach the strategic long-range systems 
And my view is he thinks it's another quiver in intimidation. And then he goes back to the status quo and keeps the treaty. I mean, he could that could be an option. We won't know, of course, until he decides one way or another. It, it may be a bluff. It may be just simply, as others would point out, he's got plenty of weapons. He's way above our level. He also may know that we can't produce very many new warheads. As you know, it's called a pit is what we produce for a warhead. We're hoping to get to 80 pits per year at two sites, 150 and 130 a year. And that doesn't happen until about 2030. So as you know, he can build up a lot quicker. So he may be putting that trump card on the table of saying, I could build up a lot faster beyond New START than you can. And so therefore, but he didn't, he wasn't explicit about the concession he wants us. He just said, I don't like the rules that tell me I can't invade another country. And if you look at it, if he got away with Ukraine, and this is where I disagree with my our friend Tucker Carlson is, and then Cassie Gubbard is, if you let him take Ukraine, does he take Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania? And after that, does he decide Poland might be next? So he said, I'm not rebuilding the Soviet empire, but he said, I'm building an empire. You know, Catherine the Great once was asked, how, did Russia, how does Russia defend its borders? And she said, by expanding them. It's kind of an interesting comment. And that's what he's doing. Okay. I, the fact that he hasn't been as successful as he thought just means, as you said, is he willing to grind this out and lose, I mean, losing 200,000 dead and injured soldiers already in a year? Can you imagine? We didn't lose that number, and that's double the number we lost in Vietnam and Korea combined, plus some. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, f this is one of the points for Rebecca Koffler made when we, we talked about the topic was that the Russian, sort of the Russian theory of warfare is one in which they're more than willing to lose. They do poorly up front, then they adapt, and then they ultimately grind out warfare. For them, it's attrition warfare, and they have exactly. historically, that you know, take World War II, sort of their their stellar moment in which, you know, they they had more. Their tanks might not be better than the Germans, but they had a lot of them. Their their soldiers might not be better trained than German soldiers, but they had more of them, and they just ground the German in the German effort down. And so I wonder the, if the other thing, Adam, is is uh, Russia has a view of the world in which they're always enemies ready to storm the gates of Moscow or Saint Petersburg. But you look at Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, the Baltics, Finland. None of them have the ability to make an incursion into Russia. And this fairy tale that even NATO is not designed to be an aggressive force that moves uh, to the east, it's not designed for that. It's a totally defensive set. And, and But Russia has this, you know, and our, our, those of us that you know work in this business have dear friends who are experts on Russian history, is they have this paranoia that they're about to be attacked. Yes, the Nazis attacked them. Yes, Napoleon did. But they've also gone in the other direction. They have gone west. And they uh, they fought the Japanese quite often. Uh, they had skirmishes with the Chinese, though no major war for some time. 
but the Russians have a very aggressive stance with respect to their neighbors, and they would like to incorporate those folks they lost at the end of the Cold War back into semblance of an empire. And Putin himself has said this. He said, not the Russian Soviet Union, but something different. But on the other hand, these countries are basically saying, no, I don't think so. And some of them have the NATO umbrella over them, and primarily the United States, and that's why we're in a conflict. So my worry uh, is that we're not thinking seriously that the strategic nuclear balance matters, and we're basically behind the eight ball in terms of modernization and being able to uh, build up if we, you know, if we had to. And that, that applies to China, too, because I don't know that our current system, which doesn't even match Russia, are we going to be able to hold at bay Russia and China, where they combined don't have twice as many warheads as we do, but let's say triple. Yeah, it's a that to me is where we're, we're, we're potentially on the negative side. That's where we're going. And they're going to be more willing to use you know, the threat of nuclear weapons against the United States, and and because they're you know assertive and now now granted the united states i think we as americans often overlook uh just how you know we've invaded more countries in the last you know 40 years than the russians or the chinese have so we we have our own you know aggressive streak uh now we would always say that it's, I, it's, I think it's called liberation Adam, <laughs> as opposed to you know the taliban did attack us saddam did invade Iran and ended up with two, three million people dead. He did invade Kuwait. And then once we're gone, we're gone. I mean, it's tragic what happened in both Afghanistan and in Iraq. But I, I understand your, your, the, the, the Russians often trot that out. Yeah. So, and it, you know, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, for the Serbs and others, you know, they they have their own heartburn with, with the United States. So, but one of the things that it's, it's certainly true is that, for these countries that are in Eastern Europe, say the Poles, for example, there, there's absolutely no love, love lost between the Poles and the no, Russians. No, they're, they're <laughs> thankful for the fact we liberated them, like we did Grenada. We kept El Salvador from going down the tubes. Uh, we helped Colombia beat back the FARC. Um, you know, as Margaret Thatcher once said, there are cemeteries all over Europe with American soldiers which is tribute to the fact that we kept that part of the world free. Yeah. There are no cemeteries with, well, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so, so as we come to a close, cause we're, we're running out of time. Do you see any real loss for the United States by Putin's actions? Do you think well, if if you make the assumption, Adam, that he's they're abiding by the treaty, of some new treaty, then the knowledge kind of predictability is helpful and sure. transparency. But unless you have those two things, particularly transparency and predictability, then your treaty is you're pretending it's a good treaty. Like the best thing we could do is get the Chinese to be transparent. That would really be a help. But the Russians are not that transparent when it comes to their theater systems. Uh, and the question is, that to me is the most important thing. And when that goes away, the value of the treaty goes away. And arms control doesn't substitute for deterrence. 
arms control has to serve deterrence, just like missile defense. Missile defense serves deterrence. The idea that it's that we build missiles and we're defending, we're going to nuke Russia tomorrow and then defend with a you know even a space-based system is crazy. But when you're in the arms control business, your primary business is weapons themselves are bad, and it doesn't matter the context of. Wait a minute, there we have them here for a reason. I always ask people. If you want to go to zero nuclear weapons, which the UN now is have the resolution that none of the nuclear powers voted for, but okay, let's get rid of them. Would you have gotten rid of world of nuclear weapons in 1945 and said, and and Roosevelt says to the the Mar, the uh, nuclear program, drop it. We're, we don't need to go there. Nobody else has them. Don't worry about it. And then, knowing what you now know, would you go into the post World War II environment without nuclear weapons? Yeah. Knowing that Russia would get them in 48, China would get them soon, and then so forth. And then would you want to live in a world where uh, the bad guys have the nukes, but they're not usable, as Global Zero says, and we don't? Well, the great... I think you alluded to that earlier. Yeah, the great thing about that world would be that because we didn't have them, the Russians and the Chinese would know that we meant them no harm, and therefore we would live in (laughs) peace and harmony. And that's... That's Absolutely. what would be great about that world. So, uh, a, yes, remember <laughs> the, the Russians, God love them, signed a non aggression pact with Japan in before World War II and told Japan the way to go was to go east. They signed a non aggression pact with Adolf Hitler, which enabled Hitler to go west. Okay. They enabled the two Axis powers that nearly destroyed the world to go to war. They did. They did. The Russians. They did. (laughs) Well. God love Stalin. (laughs) It's, you know, unfortunately we are out of time, but we we really never, you made a a good point about arms control, that arms control serves deterrence. I think that's, that's. It has to. If, If it doesn't, then it's worthless. Then it's just a piece of paper that makes us feel good. Um, remember the salt treaties back in the 70s, simply allowed the Russians to build up to 13,000 warheads and us to build up to 12,000. I don't never called it arms control. I understand the argument, well, we had to do that first, but the Russians rejected reductions and people who criticized Reagan said, your proposal for reductions is crazy. The Russians will never agree to it. Yeah. Now that did serve, start one and start two, did serve our purposes, And okay? Can you imagine if we banned multiple warheads on ICBMs, which is what START II did? Unfortunately, the Russian Duma turned it down for exactly that reason, unfortunately, in 1999. So, um, but that tells you arms control that's serious and real, the bad guys are going to have a hard time signing such a deal. Very much true. Very much true. So it, it, it makes, you. it's like the JCPOA with Iran. You get what you can get, which isn't good, which is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to get rid of it eventually, which we did. But as uh, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State and CIA director, has pointed out in his new book, it was far worse than he thought once he became head of the CIA. Yeah. And he saw some of the details. And he opposed it when he was a House member. But as you know, uh, it's a terrible deal. But again, Iran will accept it. So we went along with it. Yeah. Well, 
Unfortunately, we are absolutely out of time. It has been great, as always, having the fount of information that is Peter Husey. Thank an you. An institution in this business. So thanks for uh, coming on again. Thanks for doing it quickly because, you know, sometimes the news moves quickly and we got to move with it. So it does. It does. So thanks for coming on and. Thank you. And thanks to the listeners. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again in the future, Peter. Thank you, sir. Take care. So it was interesting in talking about this with Peter and just his take on what he thinks the Russians, what he thinks Vladimir Putin's going to do. But the thing that really struck me that I remember is that arms control must serve deterrence. It cannot be an end in of itself, which is, you know, it's absolutely true. And it's been something I've been thinking about for quite a bit of time. So that's sort of my takeaway, you know, arms control must serve deterrence. It must be good for us. It cannot be an end in of itself. Hopefully you'll, uh, you found that interesting as well. A point worth remembering. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Funkall. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NewPodcast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.